Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Sound Agriculture. I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. This week's edition of the podcast is a rebroadcast of an episode from our sister program, the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. We wanted to hear from National No-Tillage Conference fixtures, the Reddick family of Bardwell, Kentucky, and their recent Leopold Conservation Award win. Brad and Joel Reddick spoke to Strategies podcast host and Cover Crop Strategies editor Noah Newman about their journey into Regen Ag and winning the Leopold Award. My name's Brad Reddick, uh, Bardwell, Kentucky. We're in the uh, westernmost part of the state of Kentucky along the Mississippi River. We farm primarily rolling hills and creek bottom ground. We have corn, soybeans, wheat, occasionally grain sorghum. And uh, we have uh, four broiler barns that were contracted with an integrator. And we also have a 80-cow beef cow herd, commercial beef cow herd. And uh, I've, I've been involved in farming uh, my entire life. I was I was raised here on this farm. My wife and I have been actively farming for about 25 years. But I've been involved in, in cattle and tobacco and row crop uh, my entire life. And I know your son, Joel, is joining us as well. Uh, Joel, introduce yourself and tell us how heavily involved are you in the operation? Uh, hi, this is Joel Reddick. I'm uh, Brad Navy's son. I'm uh, 25, and I've, I've been here on the farm full-time for four or five years now after I got out of college and got done doing that. And I, I'm involved every day. Uh, some days it's just as small as picking up trays, feed trays in the chicken houses, and some days it's it's making helping make big decisions on uh, how we're going to manage uh, entire fields and entire crops. It's got a lot of variability, but but I enjoy that. There's there's lots of curveballs. We've certainly had a curveball this last month with record heat and record drought, but we're dealing with that as best we can. So what college did you go to, and did you always want to be involved in farming, or is this something that kind of while you were in college you had an epiphany and you want to do it, or is this something you've always wanted to do, Joel? I was involved in FFA and, and things like that in high school, and that, that kind of piqued my interest and got me engaged with with some off-farm agricultural experiences, and and I decided to go to Murray State University. I spent four years there, graduated with a degree in agronomy, and uh, that ag science degree has really helped strengthen my, my background so I can contribute more meaningfully uh, in the farm today. And and I, I've kind of always wanted to farm since I've been an adult. I guess that interest kind of started in high school for me. Gotcha. And I saw that Reddick Farms just won the Kentucky Leopold Conservation Award. So congratulations to you guys for that. Tell us about that honor and, and what it means to you guys. We were honored to, to receive that award, to be recognized for the uh, changes that we've made in our farming operation. Uh, over the course of the last five years or so, we've uh, we've gone from uh, conventionally tilling the, the creek bottom fields and the, the wetter ground and and no-tilling the the rolling ground to cover cropping basically 100% of the farm, whether it be uh, creek bottom, rolling ground, just the, the entire farm is, is now a multi-species cover crop. Every year we incorporated planting the corn and soybeans into the green standing cover crop uh, four, about four years ago. 
And we've been learning how to deal with that ever since then. Uh, it's been a learning experience. There's, there's not a, we're kind of pioneers in, in this county and basically in Western Kentucky of planting green into multi-species cover crop. There's, we don't really know of anybody else that's doing it. So we rely on people, the network of people on the internet and speakers that we hear at conferences to, to share, share our experiences and, and learn from their experiences. So, but we were, we were just uh, grateful to, to be, to receive that award and, and be recognized for what we're doing and to also share with the public what we're doing and, and uh, our successes and failures through, through that endeavor. Seems like every year is different and every year there's a, a new unexpected outcome. We're just glad to be able to share those experiences with someone else that might be wanting to help their environment that they live in. Yeah, that's one of the great parts of social media is just being able to interact with people from all over the country. I saw there's a Facebook group, Everything Cover Crops. I don't know if you've seen that, but they, they have some great stuff on there if if you haven't checked that out or if some uh, someone listening right now wants to check that out. But anyways, so so when did you start implementing these conservation practices on your farm? Was it, was there a certain moment where just the light bulb went off and you wanted to try it? Or just kind of tell us about your journey getting into the conservation practices. I I began cover cropping, I think, in, I'm going to say 2015. It, it might have been before that, but uh, I started u- utilizing uh, Equip cover crop programs about 2015. And, of course, then we established the cover crop after harvest uh, and then let it grow through the winter and then burn it down in the spring and plant corn or soybeans into it. was having some difficulties with that, with uh, killing the cover crop and with slugs. And uh, what really changed, turned the table for us was attending the National No-Till Conference in Louisville in 2018 and meeting some uh, Adam Daughtery, I think, was the first speaker at that conference. And uh, we really, really took to heart what he was doing down in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and uh, just... I was really having some challenges with the cover crop up until then, and it, uh, that was kind of a light bulb moment to try to plant to plant green, and then either mechanically terminate. We, we're now mechanically terminating as much as we can, and uh, and then following up with herbicides where needed. Attending that conference and, and listening to the speakers at that conference was what turned the table for us and, and made us go go the direction that we're continuing today now are you guys no 100 percent no-till or how does that work yes we we don't own any full width tillage equipment anymore uh we've traded it for uh no-till drills and and equipment that will help with the with planting green and planting into the big cover crop so you know i think the biggest disc i've got right now is about 14 feet and we use it very sparingly just where we have to 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 do some maintenance or something but uh we don't have any vertical tillage uh, rotary arrows anything anymore we've we've uh traded all that for for equipment that's going to help us with uh planting corn and soybeans into the cover crop and uh so yes we're we're 100 percent no-till and uh, Joel, I'll, I'll ask you this: What kind of um, improvements or, or benefits have you started to see ever since you guys switched to no-till and using cover crops on 100% of your acres now? 
But improvements, there's there's a few things that are constant where we live. We we get about 50 inches of rain a year, and it doesn't always come when we need it, like most places. Uh, the last month we've been incredibly dry, but April and May are usually too wet and, and frequently cold as well. So we, there there are some things in farming that are certain in our geography, and, and nobody I've talked to yet in this area has yet to see a dry April. Uh, Aprils are always muddy there's flooding in the creek bottoms there's uh really wet conditions that prevent us from from planting when we would like to uh so one of the first improvements you can see when you start no-tilling and cover cropping is a reduction in erosion uh with those heavy spring rains i mean it's not uncommon for us to get three four five inches a day and a couple of rain events every single spring and and everybody else's fields around tend to wash out pretty bad the the water is, is very muddy and has a lot of sediment in it. And uh, our area is blessed with, with good ground. It's good silty ground. It's very productive. But that silt is, is not uh, as sticky as the clays up north. So it is prone to uh, erosion. And, and one of the first things that you can see implementing no-till and cover crops the way that we have is a tremendous reduction in erosion. And you mentioned off top how uh, you recently had a curveball. It was really dry there recently. So so how much did cover crops help combat that, the dry spell that you guys went through? That remains to be seen. If you call back in October, we'll be able to tell you a little bit better. <laughs> um, I, I think our fields did weather that better. Uh, I'm not going to say we're immune to it. Uh, when it's, I think uh, June ended up being about the 15th hottest in the last 100 years and, wow. and the 7th driest so it's it's definitely been the hottest and driest since the drought of 2012 in this area uh so it's it's the biggest drought in the last decade and uh we are not immune to it by any means it's this isn't a silver bullet but it it definitely lets us take steps in the right direction and and we have other people that we've followed on on social media and met through conferences and things that have been doing this longer than we have and and they're seeing even better results than we are uh the longer you implement this system the more soil you save the more your ecosystem improves and then the more resilient your ecosystem is in the event of these drastic weather changes gotcha yeah we'll we'll definitely have to check back in uh in the fall but let's let's talk about the species of cover crops that you guys are using and and um you know how did the cover crop mixes how are they custom matched for each field's crop rotation Right. So we, we've kind of had a shotgun blast approach the last several years trying to figure out what species work the best uh, for different scenarios. Uh, going to, going into corn, we, we like to plant a lot of legumes, brassicas as well, to try to scavenge nitrogen that the beans may have left or and also let the legumes fix some nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen in our area this year is about a dollar a unit. So having those legumes out there has never been more helpful in that department. Uh, we do put a few grasses in, a little bit of cereal rye, oats, barley, similar cereal grains like that to help pump some carbon into the ground and uh, maintain soil structure and things like that. Going to soybeans, we, we like a lot more grasses. Usually about a bushel to the acre uh, of total cereal grains is sufficient when you're letting it go planting green like this. The cover crops are going to get five or six feet tall before we plant. So, so we don't like to plant them too heavy because we are not burning down. We're not tilling them under. So they do get quite a bit of size to them, uh, even with 
60 pound of acre, 70 pound of acre seeding rate. We, we see good results in soybeans with that. And then every acre that doesn't get a cover crop gets wheat. Uh, we've, we've had wheat in the rotation the last couple of years, taking advantage of uh, economics uh, in the wheat. And you mentioned how you're the only ones that are that are planting green there in your area, correct? In our immediate area, yeah, we're we're not aware of anybody right now that's that's planting green like this. A lot of people do cover crops. That seems to be uh, increasingly common the last three or four years. But but most people will burn down around um, April first. Uh, if it's not too wet, uh, and that'll be approximately ankle to knee tall, depending on the planting date and the species. Uh, but that's that's becoming more normal, and that's a great start. I mean, we would we would encourage our neighbors to to start like that on 50 acres to to get acquainted with it. It can be dangerous if you're <clears throat> planning on planting green the first time. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of mistakes that can very easily be made. And, and we know because we've made them in part, but it, it definitely helps to, to start small, uh, if you don't have any experience. But if, if you can learn at these conferences and, and on the Everything Cover Crops group, that's, that's, those are both fantastic resources. Uh, you can learn from other people's experience and, and the agriculture community, especially it seems with the cover cropping world is, is very generous with information and, and helping each other. So uh, we would definitely encourage people to, to utilize resources like the, your magazine uh, puts out and, and uh, help take advantage of that. Definitely. A, a wise man once said, you always learn more from mistakes than successes. So, uh, so well, Brad, I'll ask you this. What, what were some of those challenges and, and maybe mistakes that you guys made when you first started planting green? And what kept you going and, and how did you guys eventually correct those? Well, it, it was pretty easy to start planting soybeans green. Uh, the soybeans seemed, at that time, the soybeans seemed to, to do better uh, right off the bat. Uh, we were struggling with corn in the early years of, of planting green, primarily because I didn't have fertilizer on the planter. I think uh, we bought a different planter in 2018 that was equipped with fertilizer. Uh, the and we, because at that time we weren't using as many legumes, we were using more cereals, and uh, the cereals were taking up a lot of the nitrogen that was available, like they're supposed to. But it, there wasn't anything there for the young corn seedlings. So that, the first hurdle was was getting nitrogen on the planter and and learning how to use it and and uh, get the right number of units of nitrogen out there to help the corn crop get started, and then. Then we had to, if the weather didn't cooperate, I uh, wasn't able to get the the cover crop terminated timely. And that also caused a yield drag on the corn. Uh, like I said before, since then, we've gone to uh, mechanically terminating the cover crop as much as we can uh, on the corn plant. We actually have a, a cover crop crimper on the corn planter now. And uh, so we're we're trying to get the corn the cover crop down, rolled down to where it's not blocking the sunlight and it's it's not taking up as much nutrients. I think that's been the biggest hurdle is establishing a corn crop in a cereal grain cover crop. Um, we've always had to ever since we started we've had to, to fight slugs, and now we're fighting bowls with the uh, in the soybeans. Uh, seems like every field we've got this year has got patches in it where the voles have uh, destroyed the soybean crop. So there's 
it's constant, it's a constant battle, but we we definitely see more benefits of what we're doing than we do negatives just with the erosion control and the weed control and the reduction of inputs. Yeah, kind of going into more detail, if you could just kind of take us through the process of planting green. So so when you plant and then and then how quickly do you terminate? Do you terminate immediately after or do you wait a little bit or, or how does that work? We've decided that we don't need to start planting corn or soybeans until the 1st of May. Uh, weather conditions are just too adverse uh, in April, and we like to let our cover crop get as big as we can to utilize, get maximum utilization out of the cover crop, shading the ground and preventing weed germination and uh, preventing a moisture loss. So we typically start around the 1st of May planting corn and soybeans. We're putting about 60 units of nitrogen on with the corn planter as we plant and doing some biologicals in furrow. Uh, we've got a cover crop crimper attached to the corn planter so that it's uh, rolling everything down flat and terminating as many species as possible at that growth stage. And then uh, this year, we we didn't come right back behind the planter before pre-emergence with the herbicide. Uh, I feel like as dry as we gotten, we probably would have benefited a little bit from completely terminating that cover crop earlier, but we never know what's, what's going to happen. Hindsight, we would have, our corn probably suffered a little bit from having the uh, green competing uh, cover crop out there while it was getting established. There's primarily the oats. Everything seemed to crimp pretty good except for the oats. And they were just too short and, and didn't crimp well. But typically we just, we come back about, um, when the corn's V4 to V6 stage and, and put down a uh, post emergence herbicide application. And uh, the last two or three years, the corn has been one pass of herbicide and we've had, had pretty good control. And what type of herbicide do you use? Uh, this year, I used Halix and Atrazine, Halix GT and Atrazine on the GMO corn. We have about 570 acres of corn this year, and about 250 of it was non-GMO corn. Uh, we've, we've been expanding our non-GMO acres the last two or three years and doing more test uh, strip trials and test plots with the non-GMO seed on the uh, the non-GMO, I, I used Accent and Impact and Atrazine. We'll get back to the Redix in a moment. First, I want to thank our sponsor, Source, by Sound Agriculture. Today, nutrients cost more and can be hard to get when you need them. Thankfully, there's a better source of plant nutrition. It's your soil. Source, from Sound Agriculture, unlocks more of the nitrogen and phosphorus in your fields. Learn more about Source at www.sound.ag. And now, back to the Redix. All right, well, let's talk about the, the role that, uh, that animals play in your farm. I, I know you implemented a, a rotational grazing program. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. We've only got one farm that we're able to graze cover crop at the present time. It, that farm has perennial pasture and cover and row crop acres on it. 
And uh, so I've, I've been managing grazing on the cover crop acres in the spring, March and April on that farm. And uh, the, the rest of our grazing management is on perennial pasture. We're basically, we're just moving poly wire and, and the water source uh, every day or every two days and trying to give the previous grazed ground uh, 20 to 30 days rest in the in May when it's cool season forages are growing strong it's i think it's it's helped this year with us turning off so dry it's it's prolonged our grazing but we we reached a point in mid June when there wasn't enough moisture for the grass to regrow so we're kind of uh, we're feeding some stored feed right now at, at some some one farm and and they're still grazing at the other farm but uh, we we our grasses have not grown back because we just didn't have any moisture in June. So it's, but it, it, the grazing management definitely helped us into the dry spell. When we get do start getting some moisture, not letting the cattle roam over the whole pasture will will help us out this fall. Grass reestablishing. Now, do you, do you use a manure as a as a fertilizer? Yes, we utilize all of the poultry manure that we. We have on farm in our, our primarily our row crop acres. We do use it on pasture and hay as well. But a hundred percent of what we take out of our broiler barns is used for, for fertilizer. We also buy poultry manure from, from different farms around the area to cover the acres that we can't produce manure for. And how does, and how does that work? How, when do you apply it and uh, how much do you apply? Uh, we typically re- apply two to three tons uh, prior to a wheat crop or prior to a corn crop. We, we apply it to the wheat in September and October, uh, ground that we're going to be establishing wheat in in October. And uh, before corn, we typically apply it to January through March. And uh, we, ha- we have our own uh, tandem axle spreader truck and, and loaders and stuff like that to handle manure once we get it into the field with with semis but the on the cattle manure we we don't handle any cattle manure um i've started unrolling my hay in the winter when i when i feed hay in the winter i've started unrolling it out in the pasture which helps to fertilize the pasture but the the remaining hay residue is incorporated back into the soil and helps with reseeding and with with fertilizing the the pasture and also uh keeping the cattle more or less grazing hay there it's it's a more natural way of them of the cows uh fertilizing the the pastures than confining in that, them in a specific area or feeding hay in a specific area all winter uh we've seen much better growth in the spring by unrolling the hay out in the pasture and spreading out all the manure from the cattle as as they basically graze the hay. Gotcha. All right, well, back to you, Joel. I wanted to ask you about the equipment. So what kind of equipment are you guys using for, for each crop? So the air drill puts in a lot of time here. Uh, the air drill will seed all the soybeans, typically on seven-and-a-half-inch rows, uh, which is a little bit abnormal for our area, but we're, we're currently – only farming about 1600 acres so it's it's difficult to justify having uh, a 30 inch corn planter 
an air drill and a and a 15 inch soybean planter. Uh, the 15 inch soybean planter would be more normal for our area. Uh, it's what most of our neighbors use to plant soybeans, uh, but the air drill does get used quite a bit because uh, it'll plant all the soybeans, all the wheat, and all the cover crops. So it's uh, on a 1600 acre farm. It's going to have on any given year over 2,000, 2,300 acres, depending on the rotation. So it's it it gets a lot of use, uh, but that's that helps us plant no-till. Uh, the air drill does a great job. It's a Case IH 500T, and uh, it's it was equipped from the factory pretty well. It just required some aftermarket closing wheels from our friends over at uh, Needham Ag, and so that's that's what we use for for soybeans, wheat, and cover crops. And then we've got a a thirty inch dedicated corn planter that that has in furrow and two by two fertilizer on it uh with the roller crimpers it 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 helps um get the corn in the ground well there's there's no amount of biomass that we've we've grown that 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 this particular corn planter can't handle it's it's got getters uh cover crop devastators on the front with steve martin's uh razor row cleaner wheels it's got hydraulic downforce and steve martin's razor closing wheels as well uh, with furrow and two by two fertilizer, so it's it's quite the machine for for planting through biomass. We've we've certainly put it through its paces. Seems like every year uh, there's one or two fields that that just get outrageously big, just due to the chicken litter putting on it helps increase the cover crop biomass. Uh, there's a lot of organic uh, nutrients that are readily available, and and with the corn crop, we usually put nitrogen on uh in the winter time is actually my favorite and in january the ground is typically frozen on the surface and especially in the early mornings uh so i'll get out there at at 6 a.m 7 a.m while the ground's frozen and uh, the equipment seems to to like the frozen ground and and we're not usually very busy in january february time frame and as soon as it thaws there's cover crops there to to take up those nutrients so we're not worried about any nutrient loss, applying raw manure and no-till. Uh, a lot of people would like to incorporate that litter. That's what some of the traditional manure handling would, would advise you to do is to incorporate that, that litter. But we feel that applying it no-till into a cover crop, uh, as soon as it's warm enough, February, March, the cover crop breaks dormancy. And then it's got a lot of chicken litter right there uh, ready to recycle those nutrients. So we do see pretty pretty thick growth in, in our cover crops going to corn where we put the chicken litter. So it, it does require the planter to be fairly heavily modified. It's it's pretty far from a factory Kinsey planter uh, with the, the roller crimpers, uh, the aftermarket row cleaners, uh, downforce and closing wheels and, and fertilizer as well. So there's there's not much on it that, that Kinsey brought from the factory anymore. So do you guys perform soil tests? And uh, if so, what are, what are they revealing? So we've been using conventional tests. Uh, I probably first started grid sampling most every acre in a rotation when I was in high school. So we've had most of our fields here that, that we've been farming the longest have had six, five or six different rotations in conventional testing. And we've definitely seen the conventional tests stabilize. I'm, I'm not going to say that they're that much better, but reducing the erosion does seem to help increase our our phosphorus and potassium numbers because 
the only way phosphorus and potassium leaves the field is through the combine or with rain in the form of runoff and erosion. So if we can can eliminate the the water erosion that, that our farms see, especially in the hill ground, we're we're maintaining quite a bit of that P and K that because our, our nutrients are fairly stratified and a long time no till farmer listeners will probably know what that means. But we're surface applying our chicken litter. We're not working that ground at all. So our our nutrients are much more concentrated in the upper layers of the soil profile. And and that can be risky if you expose your soil to wind and rain. But when we are are no-tilling perennially and maintaining cover crops every single season, uh, our ground is never exposed to the the harmful aspects of rain and wind. So we're, we're maintaining those nutrients. And we have seen that reflected in the conventional tests. We, we've also been using some of the newer soil health tests with, with the Haney tests and the PLFA. Uh, we've, we've been using uh, Lance Gunderson there at Regen Ag Labs, and they've been very helpful helping us understand how to interpret those. We're, we're still figuring out how to use them as far as making big management decisions. Right now, it's just kind of tracking progress and comparing the farms that we may have been managing longer uh, that have had more cover crop history, uh, more chicken litter history. Uh, we're still using it to compare farms that are less mature as far as a soil health perspective to the farms that we feel are more mature due to the, the better management and the, the longer tenure uh, being there. So we, we use a lot of different soil tests um, and trying to figure out how to put them all together is a, is a fun puzzle. It's a lot of information and, and especially the the new soil health tests are, are new and, and we're still learning as a community how we can utilize those fully. But we we're always attending different seminars and webinars and, and just getting any information we can about those new tests. Uh, I really feel that they are, are great tests. Uh, we're just trying to figure out how to use them most effectively. I want to ask you about wildlife too. I have to imagine you get some a lot of wildlife there in Kentucky. Have you noticed more on your property since you use cover crops, or do they play any role in your operation? Absolutely. I I cannot tell you how many rabbits I have seen this year planting wow. planting green. I, it's got to be over two hundred rabbits planting six seven hundred acres of soybeans um, and deer. Deer really love to bed down in the cover crops and. It's a great place to uh, to have their fawns and got a lot of good high-quality forage there. Uh, we, we see more turkeys. Uh, they like eating the worms, and, and we, we've cut out using insecticides, uh, liquid insecticides, and, and that really helps balance the insect community, and I think the turkeys really appreciate having a, a better insect diet uh, as well as protection. I mean, it's it's hard for a coyote or, or some kind of predator to – to find a turkey in that jungle of a cover crop because they can get out there and, and roost kind of on, they don't normally roost on the ground, but there's so much cover that they can, they can make a, a nest on the ground in the cover crop and lay their eggs there rather than in a tree. It's, it's typical around here for turkeys to roost in a tree, but I have sad to say I've ran over several because they, they like to protect their nests uh, on the ground. They, they don't typically like to fly away. So, so you definitely know when you when you found a turkey nest with a roller crumper. Two hundred rabbits—that's that, a lot of rabbits. It's it's more than I can count. I'm I'm just shooting from the hip there. It's yeah. yeah plant fifty acre field. I'll see a dozen 
20 even. Uh, it's, it's more than I can count. But, but I mean, what, what do you think that says about just with the impact of using cover crops uh, and conservation practices that's bringing, you know, this much wildlife to your farm? When you're seeing the macro fauna, that's the, that's the deer, the turkey, the rabbits. Uh, we also see lots of, we had four infant juvenile hawks that, that were born good. It must've been this spring because they've been really small. So we're, we're seeing predator birds. We had, uh, last, last summer we had ospreys and I, I had never heard of an osprey, <laughs> but it is a, a predator. It, it's smaller in size to an eagle and it, it's large, but the coloring is different, but they, they typically live around wetland areas, lakes, uh, rivers, and we are near some lakes and rivers, but but that's a new bird. So we're seeing predator species. Uh, the the birds in particular really thrive, and the turkeys and the the deer. And that tells you that the, that the community is is increasing because for every rabbit that you see, there's got to be ten things that rabbits eat, and for every one of those things, there's got to be more and more as you go down that 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 pyramid of of, of hierarchy of animals. So it's it's good to see new predator species uh, in the birds, especially uh, because they're going to eat the voles. They're going to help balance the ecosystem in the long haul. And uh, that tells us that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brad, I want to ask you, what are, what are the average yields for your crops? And have you noticed the yields changing at all since you started adopting the conservation practices? Yes, we have noticed the change, uh, not always for the better. But we've, we've been pretty consistent over this time period that we've been implementing cover cropping and green planting. We've been pretty consistent with soybeans around 60 bushels per acre. The the corn yields have been a little more of a roller coaster because I, I indicated earlier that early on we were I was struggling with corn with dealing with planting a, a grass corn crop into a grass cover crop. So but typically uh, I'd say we're at about 100 and 160 on corn over the last five years. When I was just no-till farming, uh, we were seeing a little higher yields than that. But by using the cover crop, we've been able to decrease the amount of inputs that we're putting into a corn crop. So we're still seeing good ROI. It's just we we're not we're not setting a record in this area on corn yields. But I think it's proof that. It, we can can be successful that we're we're still in business without spending a whole lot of money on uh, fertilizer and herbicides, and but we, we have struggled with corn, but it, we're we're slowly overcoming it, and uh, it, except for maybe this drought year, uh, but that's that's not a reflection upon us or the cover crop. That's just uh, the the hand that we've been dealt this year. Now, if I were to ask you your what are your favorite cover crop species are in terms of just which ones that you've gotten the most bang for your buck out of, uh, what would you say? Well, that depends entirely on where you're going to put it because the Lancet clover has been really awesome. It's It fixes a tremendous amount of nitrogen, and it's extremely roller crimpable. The stems of the Lancet clover are like a straw. They are extremely hollow. Uh, so if I had to pick one legume, it would probably be that one. We've we planted it early and it survives the winter. We've planted it late 
we've planted it wet, we've planted it too deep, and it, it just seems to keep coming. Uh, it's a little more expensive compared to a hairy vetch or, or an Austrian winter pea, but it, it does have, um, it's performed very well for us year in, year out. Grasses, it would probably just be cereal rye. Find a variety that overwinters well, that suits your management, and uh, cereal rye has never not survived a winter here. It, it, it's always dependable uh, for its winter hardiness. Um, and, and in Kentucky, our, our normal uh, average low temperature in the wintertime is probably around zero degrees or five degrees. So we're, we're fairly moderate compared to most of your listeners, I expect. Uh, but we, we do have trouble with some legumes over drink. Uh, so we do have to be uh, fairly picky with that. But if I had to pick a grass, it would be cereal rye. If I had to pick a legume, it would be balanza clover. Gotcha. Brad, would you agree with those? Yes, I was going to say cereal rye was, would probably be my my favorite and my go-to. Uh, we we plant it just about on every acre every year. So, and it's I think it's it's been instrumental in our erosion control and our our weed control over this period of time. And uh, and you can't beat the biomass, because uh, you know. We, we we let it get big so that it, it is crimpable, and we've had a lot of a lot of falls where we've had a lot of volunteer cereal rye in the in the corn and soybeans, and uh, so it's I, it's one that we go to every year. Have you noticed more farmers in your area uh, start to think about using cover crops, or are more people doing it? Yes, I think overall there's there are more people using cover crops in in western Kentucky. It's there's not many willing to let it get as big as we do, but uh we just kind of took a leap of faith in 2018 and and started planting into the grain, letting it get big and cutting out the commercial fertilizer out of the operation and but it's over there's Overall, there are a lot more acres of, of at least cereal rye in the area than there was five years ago. Yeah, cereal rye, that always seems to be the popular one. Before I let you guys go, is there anything, anything else you guys want to add or want people to know about your operation or just the kind of impact these conservation practices are, could have? It's uh, it's important that, that people take advantage of, of podcasts like this and, and resources like this. It's there, there's a lot of unknown factors when you start farming like this. A lot of it is not new. Uh, people have been using green manure for a long time as, as a fertilizer source, and and it, the, the principles are, are not old, but uh, adapting it to modern farming is, is still new. So there's it's important to, to find resources like this and, and utilize them because you don't need to go at this alone. You'll, you'll probably fail. And if, if you fail in the first year, uh, let's say you, you plant grain with corn, you don't have the right fertilizer set up, you plant cereal rye, and you lose 50 bushels an acre, you're, you're not likely to, to try that again very, very willingly. So, so it's, it's important that people do their homework, uh, utilize resources like the No-Till Farmer magazine, the No-Till Conference, uh, and the Facebook groups and YouTube videos. And there's, there's a whole world full of information and people that have experience. Uh, I guarantee you there's somebody, uh, if you're listening to this, in your neck of the woods that has done this before, 
So, so use the resources at your disposal. Do some Google searches, if nothing else. Make some phone calls. And, and don't try this alone. Uh, use the wisdom that the community has collectively. Yes, I, I would say the same thing. Uh, if it hadn't been for the resources that we had available to us, we would have probably given up, or I would have probably given up. Uh, but I, <laughs> in, in seeing other people doing the same thing and listening to them, and and seeing the outcomes that they were sharing with us, it was easier for me to to make these changes. So I would say I would just reiterate what Joel said. Uh, utilize every resource at your disposal, but it's in my mind it's definitely worth the outcomes that we have seen. Just not having to fix the erosion that we typically have to fix in this area because of the heavy spring rains and uh, the like I said before, the, the benefits definitely outweigh the negatives that that you have to deal with from time to time, and it's it's not always the same. We we learn something new every year in our on our own farm, and uh, but there's somebody else out there that has experienced it also. We just we just plan to stay the course and and keep expanding on what we're doing, and uh, we're not trying to invent the wheel here. We're just trying to do something a little different. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Sourced by Sound Agriculture, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. More podcasts about no-till farming are available over at www.no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts, and you can also subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at bo. C-O-N-N-O-R at LesseterMedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. Be sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. For Noah and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening and farm ugly. Farm ugly.